Welcome to Talking Home Care, a podcast of the Home Care Alliance of Massachusetts. I'm Pat Kelleher, Executive Director of the Home Care Alliance and the host of this podcast. I'm enthused today that we're talking about one of the hottest emerging trends in healthcare service delivery today, palliative care, also referred to as serious illness care or advanced illness care. We are fortunate to have as our guest, Pat Ahern. Pat is President and Chief Executive Officer of Care Dimensions. Care Dimensions is the largest hospice in Massachusetts, providing daily care and their program to more than 1,000 patients in over 95 communities. Care Dimensions also happens to be one of the largest providers in our state of today's subject matter, community-based palliative care. That program at Care Dimensions has an average daily census of 350 patients, which makes them not only one of the largest programs in Massachusetts, but possibly in the country. So welcome to Talking Home Care, Pat. Well, thank you so much for having me, Pat. Before we turn specifically to the nuts and bolts of the palliative care program, why don't you tell me and the listeners a little bit more about Care Dimensions? I believe I just scratched the surface of what you do, a little bit about your organization, its history, and um, some of what you do for the 95 communities you serve. Great. Um, well, this year is a birthday year for us. We are celebrating our 40th anniversary. We have grown so much over the past many years that we now employ more than 600 employees and almost 500 volunteers. And those employees nominated us and we were able to achieve being named as one of the best places to work in America by Modern Healthcare Magazine this year. So we're excited about that. Um, we take care of patients wherever they live. Um, and so that can certainly, it's mostly uh, patients that are in their own homes. Some of the patients live in nursing facilities, assisted living. Some of them are a little too sick to stay home. And so they reside in our, our inpatient facilities. We have two of them, one in Danvers and one in Lincoln. We have all kinds of specialized programs, lots of bereavement services, complementary therapies. Um, and really, uh, what, we, what we really want to say is, you know, you can, you, can, you can, it's possible to live well, even in the face of serious illness. You just need some, a little bit of help. We almost think of ourselves as a midwife at the other um, the other time of life that we all share. And so we're just helping families try to make it through their, their days and nights. I love that description, the midwife towards the end of yeah. life, as opposed to the beginning. Let's talk a little bit about palliative care. It's a term that some people don't understand, um, um, but it's generally in the, um, in the healthcare circles defined as care for people who struggle with the pain and symptom management of what is a fairly advanced illness, but they are generally not ready for or don't qualify for hospice care. Um, do you agree with that definition? And tell me a little bit what the palliative care service looks like at Care Dimensions. So many years ago, those of us in the hospice community sort of awakened to the reality that there was so much suffering in the community that was going unserved. Um, those of us that uh, feel like we have content mastery over pain and symptom management and whole person care, we, we think that you shouldn't have to earn that very best care because you've been finally diagnosed as terminally ill. We think that because, because we are able to deal with uh, pain and symptom management so well, we ought, to be, we ought to be working 
with it for people that are suffering way before they're terminally ill. And so that's really where this whole idea of palliative care came from. It seems to me that what distinguishes some of the palliative care programs that um, I have observed is that it truly is pain and symptom management at an advanced level, but there's also a sort of a goal-oriented component to it. In other words, um, people start talking about what truly matters to them most, not only in the management of their disease, but in their life processes at at that time. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say that probably 50% of the work that we do in palliative care, not just in the community, but also in hospitals and nursing facilities and assisted living facilities, is to really sort of get to the nugget with the patient and the family about what matters most to them. Um, and really, how do they, what are their goals as as they see that their their illnesses are not going to be cured but we always say that even though you can't, not everyone can be cured, anyone can heal. So what can we do to, to make your days as manageable as possible so that healing happens in families, in communities, and, um, and in, the, you know, we're in the places where the patient wants the healing the most? Can you talk a little bit about what the palliative care team looks like, who's on that team, sure. who a patient might be interacting with on a regular basis? There, in, in community palliative care right now, the team is primarily nurse practitioners and physicians. And that pos- partly has to do with the payment methodology. Um, palliative care is billed through Medicare Part B, and so that's where the reimbursement is for nurse practitioners and physicians. The palliative care in community of the future, which is where we are just about to embark on, really is a whole team of people. And so it is a nurse and nurse practitioner, physicians, but also chaplains and social workers, people that can really sort of round out the team and help the patient um, really uh, deal with the things that matter most to them, aside from just the symptom management. So, um, you know, we, we call it whole person care um, and really focused on their goals, but also focused on their, you know, their daily lives so that they can have better days. We'll circle back to the the challenges around uh, payment in a few minutes for some of the, our listeners who may be home health and hospice agencies looking to to think whether they can expand their service offerings. We'll come back to that. Why don't you say a little bit, can you say what diagnoses are most prevalent in the palliative care space or is it um, very diverse? You know, it's interesting. Um, the Certainly in palliative care, we see cancer, we see heart failure, uh, respiratory illness, COPD, of course. But the fastest growing segment of our palliative care service is dementia. Um, families that are really just trying to reach out and have been advised to seek out some palliative care support so that they can, uh, so that the family can uh, feel like they actually have a hold over what's going on in their lives. That's incredibly interesting because I think dementia care is so difficult for all of us in the community-based space to wrap our arms around. There's just so much need, um, so much demand, and so little service offerings, especially given that the mass, the Medicare home health benefit is fairly restrictive in terms of being able to, through the traditional benefit, manage a, a chronic dementia uh, patient. 
Well, and that's that's true. And I always like to remind people that for community palliative care, it can be aligned and alongside other services that are already underway in the home. So you can have palliative care and skilled nursing home care. You can have palliative care and long-term care. Um, and so it's not it, it, it's not a standalone. It's it's really an and. It's a great big and, not an or. That's great. And and how do patients generally come to find your program? It's certainly how long have you been running? You're up to 350 in census. How have uh, patients come to find the Care Dimensions Palliative yep. Care Program? Is it physicians sending them your way? Um, families just doing some internet searching? How are they finding you? Interestingly, um, uh, Care Dimensions is one of the first palliative care programs in the country. It really began in 2002. Uh, within a couple of years, it started just like most palliative care in hospitals, but really just within a few years, they were already doing palliative care in the community, um, in not only in, in, in homes, but also in long-term care facilities and skilled nursing facilities and assisted living. They Patients get referred to us, of course, from physicians, but also from community services, the adult area on aging, um, people in faith communities, word, you know, word of mouth is still our number one referral source. And so um, they come from a variety of places. And, um, and we, we screen those patients and we make sure that it's, you know, because some, some people, it's really almost time for hospice care by the time they come to us thinking they need palliative care. So we try to figure out which one of our services is the, is the best fit for them. And uh, we get underway that way. And and do you um, have a sense of the, the percentage or do a high percentage of your palliative care patients end up being discharged to a hospice eventually or uh, being discharged from service just to home? Um, where, where do the palliative sure. care patients go? For sure, about 50% of our, pa- of our palliative care patients wind up enrolling in hospice care when the time comes. And uh, so we're watching for that because we want them to be able to access their Medicare hospice benefit um, when when they need it. Um, Definitely what we're seeing is when patients are referred, when patients come to our hospice program from palliative care, they tend to stay almost 40% longer than um, other patients referred to hospice care. Interesting. Interesting. You mentioned that your program's been um, operational since 2002, so you have more than a decade of experience. I know for a fact that other home health and hospice providers are still looking at this um, and have not um, jumped into this area yet, primarily because of payment, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. When you look back to 2002, you know, when you, when you were just getting started, was the biggest obstacle payment at that time, staffing, um, understanding of the benefit, cultural within your organization? What, if you could look back, maybe you weren't there, but if you think about um, how a program gets started, what are the obstacles? I think one of the earliest obstacles for all of us that started palliative care early is, was, was finding the talent you know, so this, especially when you start to talk about palliative care in the community, this is not just a rounding service in a hospital. This is people getting in their cars, going, you know, being out of their comfort zones. They're not taking care of patients and families in hospitals. They're actually in their homes. And so um, talent uh, was, was really one of the first 
and oldest obstacles. Uh, over time now, there, of course, is board certification in palliative medicine. There is board certification also for nurse practitioners and nursing. So we have been able to cultivate and grow our own and encourage uh, those kinds of fellowships and that kind of work. But early in the early days, it was mostly finding people that could actually do the job. Right. And, and understand that very uh, special type of training that you need That's to right. be dealing with with people. You mentioned that your team is primarily um, nurse practitioners and physicians who are on the staff of Care Dimensions. Can you talk about how you interact with the primary care physician of the patient in the palliative care program? How do you bring that he or she into the mix? Yep. What is the intersection in terms of them understanding what the palliative care in the community is doing right. and how that relates to their plans for that patient. We believe that it's very important for the, the patient to retain their relationship with their primary uh, physician. And so we work really hard to make sure that we stay on that radar. We report back to the primary care physician. We let them know how we're doing. We make advice about um, changes that we think might actually um be warranted. And so the primary care physician stays quite involved. That is one of those myths about palliative care and hospice care is that you have to give up your doctor. And that's not so. We would actually very much prefer to be working with your own private uh, doctor uh, rather than take over your care. And it seems that in, in, in many instances, the palliative care program can be a true bridge between the family and the doctor, helping the, the physician um, when we go back to that idea of what matters most, right. uh, understand what the, you know, the advanced directive or what the directive is from the family in terms of how they want um, their loved one to be handled. And I think physicians um, are becoming the biggest supporters of these types of palliative care programs just because um, you have eyes and ears in the patient's home that that physician right. simply doesn't have. We become sort of a translation service, don't we? In yep. terms of we we try to we try to convert what what the patient may have or may not have understood that the doctor said to them. Um, we convert that to plain language in situ in their homes, and um, and re relate back to the to the private to the primary doc about what you know what really does matter most to the patient. It's very different when the conversation is is, is happening at the kitchen table than when the conversation is happening in an exam room. Absolutely. Let's tackle a little bit that the payment issue. It's interesting everything um, that has been published or everything we hear about palliative care um, um, leads to, to two conclusions. One, there's a high degree of patient satisfaction with the service for all of the um, reasons you've talked about in terms of the one-on-one -on -one care, understanding what matters most to them, um, keeping them um, and their family feeling um, safe at home. or But also we understand that palliative care, and this is not the driving force, um, also happens to be a, a most efficient or cost-saving service because when a patient feels safe and connected to community-based providers, they tend not to end up in the emergency room, in an ambulance, in the hospital. So the program does produce cost savings, and yet um, payers, not just Medicare, but other payers, um, Medicaid, and, and others have been slow to act in terms of a defined payment. But we think that might be changing. Um, do you think that palliative care is getting on the radar screen um, for new ways to pay it, either for the federal government or our traditional yeah. commercial players like Blue Cross Blue Shield or Tufts or Fallon here in Massachusetts? Yeah, I, I think that um, 
there is an awakening among uh, payers, uh, both both federal, local, and private, that um, community palliative care may actually be the secret sauce that helps patients avoid rehospitalizations, avoid the emergency department, and avoid the ambulance ride. And so I do think there's a lot of energy coming our way in terms of payment reform, which is very, very seriously needed. Um, I was just at a conference for a week in Denver, the Center to Transform Advanced Care, where they were talking about payment reform a lot. Here locally, we have uh, we, we are underway right now uh, with a response to a request for proposals from our own Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts for um, a community palliative care program. And so, yes, I think payment reform is definitely coming. Um, in the meantime, we support it through philanthropy. We certainly also support it through our own margin. Um, it's, it's an expense for us. Um, but the fact is, is that our mission is not only for people that are terminally ill. Our mission is more about suffering than it is about what label you've got. And so um, we chose to do palliative care um, because it's, it's, just, it's just good for the community. And do you think more uh, folks in the home health and hospice community are ready to be partners in, in delivering this service? Do you think that you will expect to see other um, of your colleagues in hospice and home care try to emulate what you've done? Um, or are they just not ready to move to the type of sometimes financial risks that a program like this can have if the payment is not substantial enough and they can't fundraise a use philanthropy as you do. Yeah, that, and that's the real challenge, isn't it? Um, you know, there there does need to be some scale. You need to be a certain size before you're willing to sort of dive into this. I do think that more uh, more players are coming. I think that as uh, as payment reform comes, that will uh, that will wet, wet the appetite a little bit more. Uh, for organizations that want to that that that, that want to see if they can um, get to know a patient and their family earlier, a little bit more upstream, um, because it's good. It's not only good for the patient and the family, but it's good for the the, the organization, for the home care and hospice organization. And, and you mentioned Pat that when you started that um, talent. And, and, and finding nurse practitioners and physicians as well that are trained or um, ready to take on the, these types of clients was your biggest challenge. And I think we continue to hear that um, workforce challenges in home care and hospice are only going to grow as demand grows um, and the um, clinical skill set of the nurses and physicians needs to be updated to deal with these um, terminally ill or advanced illness patients. Are there things that we should be thinking about either as an industry or, or as a trade association in ways that we can help prepare yeah. or help nurses, nurse practitioners and others be ready for helping with advanced illness care? Well, there is a, uh, there's something right now in uh, that, I think it just passed the uh, the House and they're waiting for the Senate to approve. It's called the Pachetta. Um, uh, uh, rule, and it's all about physician education during in medical school uh, about end-of-life care and palliative care. So that'll help. And I think that local programs really need to have relationships with the schools, um, the schools of nursing, social work, um, not and of course, uh, the medical schools. And we need to open our doors to their students uh, for rotational experiences. Here at Care Dimensions, we're even doing a nurse residency program for new nurses who um, have, have an interest in end-of-life care, 
but need uh, but but need you know a good nine months or so to gain the kind of specific skills. And so we're even we're doing that. Um, I think we just started a class of six nurse residents. Um, so yes, I think that it's in, it, it's incumbent on all of us that are operating um, hospice home care or in palliative care organizations to welcome the students and welcome the schools um, in and do what we can to help them grow their programs. Yeah, and in Massachusetts, we have the Coalition for Serious Illness Care. We also have the Conversation Ready Project. Um, and a lot of their um, education and outreach is um, directed at families understanding um, that there may be times when they should be thinking about the conversation. But having nurses and physicians who are trained to have conversations with families can be a, a very difficult skill to learn. Um, and, and because simply all of us sort of like to deny, um, and all of us have been through it with our own family members. Um, so having nurses who are what we call conversation-ready trained, um, I think is going to be critical, whether they're nurses or nurse practitioners. That's absolutely right. And of course, Ellen Goodman says it the best. It's always too soon, and then it's too late to have the conversation. And so we are urging, uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting statistic, but there are there has been some research that shows that less than 50% of healthcare providers themselves have had the conversations with their own families. And so we've got, we need to overcome this obstacle. Um, it, it's, it's not a medical issue, it's a life issue. And um, it's one of those things that a lot of people just really don't want to confront. Absolutely, I agree. We've talked a little bit about this, but let me just ask you in concluding, is there anything you can say that we haven't already covered about where you seek community-based palliative care heading in the next three to five years or what we as an industry need to be thinking about that we haven't talked about? Yeah, one of the things that I think is going to become very important to community-based palliative care is telehealth. You know, you're seeing this all over the place, and um, all of us are starting to um, to experiment with what can we accomplish uh, that does not require quite as much windshield time in the car, mm-hmm. right, driving back and forth. Another emerging uh, priority, and it's something that we will we are starting to explore, is home-based primary care. So this is for the patients that um, can't get out and about and can't get back and forth to doctor's offices for visits. There are a lot of palliative care uh, programs in the United States that are starting to provide home-based primary care. We have actually already been approached by uh, a couple of physicians that are curious about uh, about doing that with us. And so I think that's a trend that is definitely coming. The other trend that we're seeing um, is uh, specialization. We are going to cultivate a specialization in dementia care just because it's such a growing aspect of care. We have a special um, program involving uh, adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities. And so we're starting, we we have long long ago had a, and still retain a um, cardiac specialty program and a a respiratory specialty program. And so I think we're going to see more more energy focused on, you know, the the sort of disease and how Mm -hmm. we can really make sure that we're maximizing the quality of the time because we're an expert in that disease. That's so interesting, Pat. And I also think um, that there is a lot of movement to understand um, different cultural approaches to end of life and to make sure that our palliative care programs are culturally sensitive to different um, 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 types of older folks and how their cultures 
um, accept or um, address end of life issues. That's exactly right. You know, we um, we we parachute into the lives of a long established family, and we have to be able to respond and understand and appreciate what what's going on there. So that that's a really important point. You are an extremely elegant spokesperson, Pat, for this incredibly important service. And I think what Care Dimensions does every day in the 95 communities that you serve um, is incredibly important, often invisible until people find the need for the service and find you. So let me say thank you for what you do for your patients and also for what you're doing as a spokesperson for the expansion of this important benefit. Let me give you the last word, Pat, and tell um, people who are listening how they can find you, find your service, find Care Dimensions. Absolutely. The way to get the best way to get in touch with Care Dimensions is our phone number is 888-283-1722. And of course, we have a website, www.caredimensions.org. Give us a call. We'll do everything that we can to help you and your family feel as confident and secure in your home while you're dealing with serious illness. Thank you, Pat. And also you can, if you're not in the 95 community service by Care Dimensions, find palliative care programs in the community on our website, thinkhomecare.org. Thank you again for listening. Thank you, Pat. Um, We'll see you next time on Talking Home Care. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Talking Home Care is a production of the Home Care Alliance of Massachusetts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about our association, visit us at www.thinkhomecare.org. Thank you.